I want it all to make sense. Solomon's Search for Meaning. I'm really digging this 80s theme for our uh, study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. Solomon is wandering around the world trying to find lasting satisfaction, lasting joy, just like all of us. And uh, have, you ever, have you ever been in a maze? Raise your hand if you've been in like a corn maze or, or like you went to one of those bigger mazes that's established with wooden walls and everything. You know, so at uh, Silver Birch Ranch Family Camp last year, they had a maze. And, you know, it didn't look too big. So we walked in and we were like, oh, the kids are probably going to have a tough time with this. And like 30 minutes later, we're like, where, where are we going? <laughs> it was just one dead end after another uh, trying to find our way out of this thing. That's kind of what Solomon's doing here. He's wandering up a path and trying to, trying to figure out, is this where meaning is found? And then he turns around and comes back, and he says, turn around. There's nothing there. You're going the wrong way. Solomon is trying to find meaning and purpose and security and joy that will last, and he keeps coming up empty-handed. The title of the sermon today is Unsatisfaction Guaranteed. Because he's going to show us four different life paths that are futile. That if you follow these paths, then you're going to end up empty-handed. He, he wraps them in four different people. There's like four characters here. And, and he talks about each one. And he says, oh, that's not the way. That's not the way. He has tried these ways. And he's watching people who have also tried these ways. They are coming up empty-handed. And this is what we would call a wisdom section in the Bible. So wisdom literature, when it comes to interpreting it, Solomon doesn't, you know, in this passage, he actually doesn't even mention God once. So he doesn't show up and say, here's the list of the ways that you can actually find meaning and purpose in life. It's more meandering. He's thinking about four failed ways, right? And then what we do is we reflect on that and elsewhere Solomon shares in his wisdom literature, like in the book of Proverbs, how we're supposed to think clearly on these issues. So using Solomon's quest today, and then bringing in some wisdom from the New Testament and other of Solomon's writings, we're going to figure out the wrong ways to go, and then we're also going to figure out the way that truly does lead to life. That's what it's all about. Solomon is searching for meaning in life. John Paul Sartre said this, Everything has been figured out except how to live. And that's a summary of what Solomon is finding out. How do we live? Let's pray and then we'll find out how to live. Jesus, we thank you that there's a book like Ecclesiastes in the Bible. We thank you that Solomon is just wandering around, coming up short, feeling frustrated, hitting dead end after dead end. That's how a lot of people feel right now. Some people in this room feel like they have just never found the way to life. Some people who are worshiping online today feel like they are at a dead end again and they can't find the way forward to joy that lasts to peace that endures to the promise of eternal life they feel stuck they feel lost they feel trapped father use solomon's search to lead us and guide us in the way of life that is everlasting and we pray this in jesus name amen all right, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4, Solomon says this, Then I saw, he's looking around, he's giving us an honest assessment of life as it is. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Here's the first person he looks at that's a dead end. It's the envious person. 
who's working hard but really wants what other people have. It's the looking at the other person and making that the desire that creates envy. So jot this down. If you want an unsatisfying life, number one, envy everyone around you. Envy everyone around you. I guarantee, unsatisfaction guaranteed, if your life is filled with envy. He says, I saw this. I saw that it comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Solomon confesses in this book frequently that he wanted it all. He wanted it all. He looked around at everyone, all the kingdoms around him, and he wanted to be the top of the top, so he is guilty as charged as well. You see, envy is a big problem in the Bible. Now, when I say envy, it's easy to minimize this sin. You know, like, like your friend gets a better car than you, and you're like, oh, I'm happy for you. And is that really deadly? You know, like, is it really like that problematic if someone like redoes their kitchen and I'm like, mm, mm, must be nice, you know. Envy does have a day in and day out form. Well, it must be nice. You know, where you see something that someone else has that is desirable or would make your life better and you long for that, right? Um, it can very quickly become a giant heart problem. Uh, it can very quickly become something that pollutes your soul. And I want you, because you maybe have never ever considered how much damage envy has done to your soul, or how much damage it will do to your soul if you don't pick it up by the scruff of its neck and escort it out of your heart. Envy is not a bush league sin. Envy is a major vice. How do we know that? In the Garden of Eden. It was envy that plotted the very first murder. Cain and Abel, peering before God. And Cain, when he saw that Abel's offering was accepted and his own was not, envy was envy that filled him with rage, that led to the first homicide in human history. Envy did that. And if you look at the anatomy of envy in your own heart, there's a combination. The anatomy of it is this. Uh, there's comparison and then contempt. How far you take that comparison and how far you take that contempt will be shown in time. But if you have allowed the combination of comparison and contempt into your soul, there will be bodies. There will be bodies. Maybe not physically, maybe physically. But with your words and with your heart, there will be be bodies. Envy is a major trap. It can lead you to idolize people. Oh, if only I had what she has. Comparison is a major trap. It steals your joy. It takes away love. You can't look at another person, compare, contempt, and then truly love them. You can't. Sometimes envy actually backfires, and you see someone else and the love they have, and you compare, and you contempt, but then you actually throw that back on yourself. Well, maybe if I was just better. Well, maybe if I had just tried harder. Maybe if I didn't slack. Maybe me, 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 and now guess what? Now the knife is out, and you're putting it to your own throat. There will be bodies. Envy is not a minor sin. Uh, it's a bloodbath, and we have to be so mindful of how deadly this sin is. Do you realize that when Pilate was trying the very king of heaven 
And he was trying to figure out how this hysterical crowd brought the king of the Jews, and they would rather have a murderer released than this man. Do you know what Pilate said? He perceived that it was because of what? Because of envy that they handed him over. Jesus had the acclaim and the power that they did not. There will be bodies. Hey, if you envy everyone around you, uh, watch out. Unsatisfaction is guaranteed. Shakespeare called envy the green-eyed monster that mocks its prey. Meaning like a cat with a mouse. Envy, you are prey. And envy is a green-eyed monster that will mock you as its prey while it destroys you. Uh, In pop culture today, Homer Simpson said to Mr. Burns, you're the richest man I know. And Mr. Burns said, yes, but I'd trade it all for more. Envy. Envy of those who have it. Envy of those. And even if you have it all, you want more. Envy everyone around you. Jot this down. We can envy their stuff. That's covetousness, which is idolatry, right? They've got the new phone. They've got the fashionable purse. They've got the fast car. They've got the bigger house. They have the nicer clothes. They just got the boat. Now they have the second house. Comparison, contempt. Comparison, contempt. I can envy your stuff. I want what you have. When what someone else has becomes a problem in your heart, that's envy. That's envy. Jot this down. I can envy their looks. Now, this is not just what they have. It's who they are. Uh, I can envy his strength, athleticism. He's so fit. Sometimes I do a workout called T25, Sean T. Have you ever ever done like the Sean T? And uh, he opened up in an interview once, and he's like, yeah, uh, I'm in good shape, not all the time. And he said, you know, I'm peak condition when I do the videos. He's like, but he said, people will walk up to me in public and lift up my shirt to see my abs. And he said, sometimes they ain't there. (laughs) I've been eating ice cream. (laughs) The pressure to have the perfect body creates envy. Or to be fashionable, to have the latest trend. Uh, You can envy their looks. Or their looks meaning, you know, their family. Oh, they're so perfect. They're so perfect. Look at her family, their pictures, the Christmas cards. Big source of envy. Do you still have them up? Oh, look, they took a trip. Oh, good for them. Envy. You know, Google releases its search results every year. It gives highlights of what people were searching last year, and they just came out with the 2021 results. You learn so much about humanity by what we search for. And Google said one of the all-time highs, a search that hit an all-time high last year, is this. Why did God make me ugly? Can you imagine? Many people are comparing and they feel like they're not measuring up because in this photoshopped era in particular where the apps will make you look better than you actually are, it's an impossible standard of beauty. Impossible. Envy their stuff, envy their looks, envy their likes. Jot that down. Envy their likes is just how all people like them. Look at they just did that and posted that and look at how many likes they have. They're so popular. Now, these are the intangibles of how that person gets respect, 
or has a position or influence or esteem or favor or they just got an opportunity or they got to travel and they get attention or they get good grades and all that is their likes, their likes, their likes and I don't have as many likes. If you envy everyone around you, unsatisfaction is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Hey, how are you doing with envy? Is God conquering that sin within you? The moment you feel a comparison coming on, and then it's about to transition to contempt of yourself or that person, do you catch it right there and say, I'm bringing that thought, I'm dragging that thought by the scruff of its neck to the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, and I'm going to put three bullets in it, and then I'm going to walk away. Or do you allow it to sit as your companion? Listen, listen to how sad this is that envy becomes your false guide. Oh, hey, if you follow me, I'll take you to the happy place. If you follow me, I'm going to get you all those things you've ever wanted. I'm going to make you everything you ever thought you never were. Just follow me. What a trap. Envy will take you nowhere good. Their stuff, their looks, their likes. This is not the path to life. Flip Wilson made a comment once. He said this. He said, the cost of living is going up while the chance of living is going down. Oh, you've got more than you've ever had, right? You've got it figured out more than ever before, and maybe you're still not happy. Because it's not all this stuff. It's not measuring up. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. What if you get there? What if you get that thing you wanted? What if you, what if you upsize, and now suddenly you're the one everyone's looking at? It's not loving. It's not love. Look at me. Look at my stuff. I want to be the one to be envied. That's not loving. You can't be loving and try and get to the top of the pack at the same time. It's not loving. Proverbs 14.30 says this, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. What's that called? Is it osteoporosis? Is that what it's called? The deterioration of the bones? right? We're envy, envy, and before you know it, you're envying for so long, right? And then crack, a bone breaks, and you're just falling apart because you're building your identity, the frame of who you are on deterioration of the way God made you. No wonder there's these snaps, these bone breaks, these dislocations. 1 Peter 2.1 says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Throw it away. Throw it away. You're, you're getting out of my heart right now. So envy everyone around you. That's unsatisfaction guaranteed, but jot this down. Or you can choose to be content and joyful, meaning this is a different way. Rather than envying everyone around you, be content and joyful. This is the road. This is the path. This is the wise way that we are to actually live instead of envying everyone around us. We're to be content and joyful. Not contempt, content. Contentment in the Bible, do you know where it begins? When should we start feeling that sense of contentment that we're going to be okay and God's got this under control? When we, you know what the New Testament says? When we have food, clothing, shelter. That's it. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that all of your livelihood should stop there. It teaches that your contentment should start there. Though your riches increase, set not your heart on them. The increasing of things isn't forbidden. It's the heart being built on them that's forbidden. Does contentment start for you? Got food? Check. Got clothes? Check. Shelter? Good. All right. I'm content. 
See, then when you find that contentment, contentment will be your guide through whatever you do have or you don't have. Okay, we're content. We, we don't need that. God gave us that. We're content. Are you content? Are you content? It says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Wait a minute. Contentment means I'm fine without anything more. Right. Bingo. That's great mega gain to be content. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said this, take care and be on your guard. All right, so be on your guard means like a fight's coming. So go like this, right? Come on, put your dukes up. Come on, put them up. Come on, come on. This section over here, you're not doing it. Put your, put your dukes up. Be on your guard. Be on your guard against what? All covetousness. Covetousness. Oh, there it comes again. Bam! You're not happy. Bam! You need your neighbors. Bam! That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to knock it out. Be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Wow. The truth is, Jesus Christ is the only cure for covetousness. The question asked in the New Testament is this, are you rich in heaven? Do you have treasure in heaven? Covetousness is cured not by resolving to have nothing for eternity. I'm just going to go up to heaven and have a little cardboard box and God's going to give me a crumb every day. Wait, what? No, no, no. You see, covetousness is cured by the riches of God's abundant. He's getting carried away in heaven. We have everything in Christ, riches beyond measure because of who he is. Therefore, when we have all of heaven's treasure in our pocket, why are we chasing around nickels down here? Do you see that? I've got it all in Christ. And trust me, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be that fascinated with the sidewalk. You're not going to be like, oh, look, tink, tink, this is the best place I've ever been in my life. Like, Jesus is going to be there, shining in glory. That's going to be the big one, okay? The gravel is going to be like, who cares? So, wow. I like what A.W. Tozer says. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go, one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight, whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one in Christ, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Envy? Get out of my heart. Number one, if you want unsatisfaction guaranteed, envy everyone around you, or you could be content and joyful. All right, now he moves on. In verse five, he says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, this is a quick condemnation of sloth. So one person wants everything, and now the sloth wants nothing. Jot this down. Number two, give up, drop out, and slack. This is the opposite. Give up, drop out, and slack. So unsatisfaction guaranteed, adopt the slothful minds. I don't want anything. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. Behold the sloth. 
The sloth is uh, described as an, another major vice um, in Scripture, actually a, a bandit, a master thief. A master thief sloth is described as robbing us, and if you think about it, it's a profo- profound thought, that there you are sitting on the couch doing nothing uh, all day long, all year long, right? There you are, and it's as if you have been bound and you're being robbed, robbed. So give up, drop out, and slack. Sloth is now in view. Desire was the problem in point one. Lack of desire is now the problem in point two. Work was the problem in point one. Rest is now the problem in point two. And make no mistake about it, work can be a major problem in your spirit, but so can rest. Leisure can get out of control, and you can become bound by sloth. It's not wise or virtuous to slack in life. As a student, as a parent, as an employee, as a member of a congregation, we're challenged in the New Testament to do your best to present yourself as a workman approved. The Bible says all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. And so we are to be hard workers as Christians. How are you doing with sloth? The picture here is actually pretty disgusting. It says the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What does that mean? Here's how gross it is. The slothful person is seated with hands folded, Uh, put a little barbecue sauce on each arm, and then starting to eat himself. Cannibalism. Ew! What's on the menu? I am! You should be like, ew, that's a pretty gross image, right? Like someone covering themselves in condiments and then starting to eat themselves. It's supposed to be a shocking image of what sloth leads to. What does sloth lead to? Well, the consequences of sloth uh, is death by self-indulgence. Death by self-indulgence. I become the cause of my own undoing. I'm consuming myself, and oh, there's, there's a lot going into my stomach, but it's me. And this portrait of feeding myself can it could take on many forms. It could take on food, right? You're just sitting at home eating or, or even media or whatever. Like you're just consuming. You're a, you're a living, breathing consumer. It's me taking in, right? More of me taking care of me. And the picture here is that you're eating yourself to death. Wow. That is gross. If you give up, drop out, and slack, And you just are doing nothing to help other people. It's all just you consuming and self-indulging you. It's like you're feasting on yourself. You are the cause of your own death. How are you doing with sloth? How are you doing at establishing and maintaining a good work ethic? How are you doing at caring for the needs of other people? How are you doing at having a godly, healthy ambition in life? Something you live for, something you fight for, something you work for. How are you doing at that? Are you winning the battle against sloth? Are you losing the battle, or have you lost the battle altogether? Jot this down. Give up, drop out, and slack. Don't work hard. This is unsatisfaction guaranteed. Don't work hard. Don't work hard. There is an aversion to work right now. A lot of people, a lot of people, when COVID came and, you know, knocked them at home, and uh, they got financial support, and they don't want to go back to work. 
don't want to go back to work. A lot of people, a lot of jobs out there, a lot of people don't want to go back to work, or they don't want to go back to work the way they did. There's an aversion to work right now. There's a labor crisis because people don't want to work. And it's a problem that is uh, throwing our whole economy um, into disarray right now because there's supply chain shortages because there's not enough workers. Now, yes, ports can be shut down because, you know, the virus comes in, uh, but there's also people who just don't want to go back to work. And it's creating all these shortages, which is driving up prices. Do you see the damage that can be done to a world, to a country, uh, when people just don't want to work? Give up, drop out, slack, don't work hard. Um, a British humorist in the late 1800s, whose name was Jerome K. Jerome, said this, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. Now everyone faces this temptation. Last thing I want for you is to go home and feel guilty because you didn't get everything done on your to-do list. This isn't about mom guilt, like you need to work harder to take care of your children or they're going to turn out to be demons. You know what I mean? Like if you're working and you're doing your best, this isn't time for you to heap guilt on yourself, okay? Uh, we can all be doing more. The pendulum is not supposed to swing. Remember, we can have a work problem too. Uh, but if there is a rest problem, if you know it's gotten out of control, if you know it's time to get back in the game here, God might be convicting you. Don't work hard. Proverbs 23, 21 says this, For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. That's where it leads if we won't work hard. Proverbs 12, 24 says this, The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. So this diligence, this work ethic, is really important. And it's because working hard is an imitation of God. Work is not a curse. We were put in the garden to work it from the beginning before we even fell into sin. In six days, the Lord made the earth, and then on the seventh, uh, he rested. God is a working God. He wants us to be like him. That's why we work, and we can find joy in our toil. Uh, jot this down. Don't care for others. Give up, drop out, and slack. Don't work hard. Don't care for others. This is, again, a path toward unsatisfaction. Don't care for others. Typically, working is a way to help others, to contribute to society. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. Wow. I've got family. I won't work to help them. Worse than an unbeliever? Like the love that should kick in, I'm going to work hard to help them. It should just be a no-break. It should be a fundamental I'm not going to help them. I'm not going to work for them. You know, wow, worse than an unbeliever. That's that. Wow, Jesus spent most of his waking hours serving people, whether teaching them or healing them or training them. Wow. So there is a better way. Give up, drop out, and slack. Or jot this down. You can work hard and then rest. Work hard and then rest. We're seeking a balance here. Commit to contributing helping those around you, then there's going to be some you time, right? But rest can't be all that there is. That includes in the church in Romans 12, 11, it says this, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. 
work hard and then rest. Many people think rest is all it will take to satisfy them. A lot of people look forward to retirement because there's going to be a lot of rest. And hear me clearly, there's not a problem with retirement. There's not a problem with travel and seeking rest. There is a problem if you think that's going to make you happy. It won't. A lot of people have a big wake-up call when retirement comes and they get to start doing some of those things and they're still not happy. And in fact, as they're kind of filling their entire day with leisure and rest and not finding a little thing to do to work or they're not working around the home, right? Guess what happens? Their soul starts to corrode. And then they're not their best self anymore. And then their spouse is like, maybe you should go back to work. (laughs) This is a common problem. Time Magazine on October 3rd of 2016 wrote about the real retirement struggle. It says this, it's critical that you spend your post-career years doing something that matters. Failing to find a purpose can lead to depression and a myriad of health issues studies have shown. Most retirees complete their bucket list within three years and don't know what to do with the next two decades, says Cindy Hutchins, director of uh, this company here. We're not very good at knowing how to just enjoy being, she says. People come into their centers to help retirees all the time. She says they walk in here in a panic and ask, how am I going to find meaning now? If you think rest is all it's going to take, you're wrong. Rest alone will not get you there. It's important to work, to contribute, to serve others. And that's true if you're in retirement as well. Serving Jesus, loving others, working hard is crucial to the soul. All right, unsatisfaction guaranteed. Number one, envy everyone around you, their looks, their likes, their stuff. Number two, give up, drop out, and slack. Don't work hard, don't care for others. Or you could be content and joyful and work hard and then rest. All right, number three, jot this down. Here's the third unsatisfaction guaranteed. Go it alone. Go it alone. Solomon now paints a picture of a loner. He says this in verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So there's a portrait of contentment there. You've got one handful of quietness or you could have two hands full of toil, which is better? Contentment. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So this isn't the keeping up with the Joneses person anymore, the envier. This is just the workaholic. This is the wake up, go to work, uh, you know, set them up, knock them down, uh, work 80 hours a week, go home. And this person, it's a sad portrait here, this person doesn't have any family, no son, no brother. They're not really even working because they have people to provide for. Work has just become their identity. It's just a person who's always work. It's always work. It's always work. It's always work. And they're not even really able to bless other people with that because they've just become a human work machine. Wow. And they're going it alone, going it alone. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is you. Solomon is highlighting the importance of human relationships. Work is now the problem again. Work was the problem because they were envying. Then rest was the problem because they were slacking. Now work is the problem again because they just never stop working. They go it alone. And Solomon laments those who don't enjoy their lives and don't really do life with others. This is one of the most beautiful passages, usually talked about in weddings in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Hey, loner, being with one other person actually (laughs) makes the job easier. And then there's scenarios here. If they fall, you just fell down, somebody can lift up his fellow. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and not has another to lift him up. You fall down. 
Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now there's that comfort and warmth of being with someone else. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Now there's protection. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now there's three, and now it's like a braided steel cable that can't be snapped. Life is better. Life is stronger. Life is warmer. Life is sweeter and safer when you have other people around you. If you're on the path of it's just me and my work, me and my work, clocking in, clocking out, daily grind, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it. You're going it alone. Another reference to the Google report from last year, they reported on what people search for most. And what they'll do is they'll give a search like how to be, and then they'll share what people most commonly wrote next. How to be, and then what people searched. Uh, Number one answer, how to be eligible for a stimulus check. That was number one. Number two, how to be more attractive. That ties into point one. Number three, how to be happy alone. Third most searched, how to be happy alone. A lot of people are alone. Maybe because they are choosing that life, maybe not. These are the, this is the workaholic who's all alone, can't be happy. Jot this down, go it alone, work your tail off. No end to his toil, Solomon says. Right? No end to all his toil, his eyes are never satisfied. Work your tail off. No days off, no Sabbath, no rest, no church, no time, no vacation, no retreat. Very sad, very busy, very lonely, very sad. Jot this down, neglect friendships and family. He's got nobody. This person has nobody in their life, no brother, nobody. Sometimes this is because there's a tragedy and there's just no one in your life. People moved away or passed away and you you feel alone, but often it's a choice because you haven't taken the time to build friendships to form them, to build them, to maintain them, to repair them. You know, that does start in your church family. We highlighted in the announcements that we did a, um, we did a church trivia night last night, first time we ever did it. We were like, maybe we'll get 40 or 50 people to come. Like 100 people came. I guess our church loves trivia. <laughs> the gym was full. How many of you were at trivia night last night? It was great. We were all together. There was laughter. There was food. You know, I, people were trash-talking me all week last week, like, oh, you're going down. I'm really bad at trivia. Okay, so it wasn't hard to beat me last night. We didn't win. I had, a, I had a few bright moments at our table. Our small group had a table. I contributed a couple times. My claim to fame last night was the question was, what did Charlie Brown's father do for a profession? Nobody knew, but they showed you a picture clue that could help, and the picture was a wrestler, and I watched wrestling growing up, and I immediately knew, I was like, that's Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Charlie Brown's father was a barber. <laughs> Slam dunk. I feel great. It was so fun for a moment. I had the claim, then I went on to not knowing anything. But hey, for that moment, it was great to be around people. Hey, are you going it alone? And look, there are many people online here. I know how you're feeling. You're feeling like you wish you could be in church. You wish you could be around people. And the time is coming. Okay, don't lose heart. The time is coming, but there's going to be that time where you're like, all right, I got to do it. I got to cross over. I got to get to church. I got to build friendships. Maybe you want to get into a small group. Man, life is better when you've got people around you. So do it safely and responsibly, but when you feel like you're up for it and it's time, don't go it alone. Jot this down. Instead of going it alone, you can prioritize family and friends. Prioritize family and friends. That includes church family. That includes having a church family. Do you know there was a study done um, 
It was, uh, it was released April 19, 2021 in Time Magazine. 47% of Americans report belonging to a church, synagogue, or mosque, according to a Gallup poll. It was the first time in 80 years that the data showed that less than 50% of Americans had a spiritual family. 80 years, almost half of Americans had a church family or a spiritual family. Um, for the first time in 80 years, it dropped under 50%. You realize what that means? If you choose to have a, a church family, a spiritual tribe around you, um, you're better off than over half of the people around you. They don't have that. And if you do, you will have a great advantage in life. So uh, unsatisfaction guaranteed, number one, envy everyone around you. Give up, number two, drop out and slack. Go it alone, number three. Or you could be content and joyful, work hard and then rest, and prioritize family and friends. And then number four, here's the fourth no-no. Dead end. Dream of having your own empire. Dream of having your own empire. Now we're back to wanting it all. Now this is the super ambitious person. Solomon goes on to lament in verse 13. He says this. Better was a, so he knows he's, he's reflecting on things he sees in life. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. We don't know who he's thinking about, right? We don't know who he's thinking about, but he knows this old wise king who became, uh, you know, a curmudgeon don't you tell me what to do, and I know everything. And then there was this poor wise youth who was an upstart, and it says, for he, the upstart, went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So this young, poor, kind of a Joseph scenario, right? Thrown in jail, and then boom, on the throne, surpassed the old, crusty know-it-all king. It says in verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of whom he led. So this young, poor, boom, rags to riches. Now he's in charge of the whole country and the whole country loves him. And Solomon is reflecting on empires. He's reflecting on people who were given a kingdom to rule. And he said that old foolish king was usurped by that young poor startup but guess where he concludes it he doesn't say and you too can one day have a kingdom right what does he say he says here in the last verse yet those who come later will not rejoice in him oh he's going down too oh the young upstart everybody loves him now give it time give it time and he'll be on the naughty list also. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. What's the point? The point is, if you're dreaming of having your own empire, you're chasing the wind. You're chasing the wind. That's not the dream. That's not the life. The richest, wisest man, with all the power he could manage, is saying to you, he's got this for it. It's not making him happy. Dream of having your own empire. Hey, don't idolize the elites. Whatever elites you're drawn to to follow on Instagram or Facebook, what did they write? What did they say? What did they blog? Don't idolize them. Don't idolize them. So many people love them. They're so popular. Don't idolize them. Don't idolize them. You're chasing the wind. That's not the path. Maurice Sendak, who was a children's author who wrote the book Where the Wild Things Are, you know, rose to fame, lots of money, lots of power. Maurice said this, there must be more to life than having everything. Still not happy. Still not happy. You think it would be great to be someone who's a superstar? Elon Musk. What if your face could be the person of the year on Time magazine? I want to be him. 
Oh, give me an empire. You know what he said? He was asked, what's it like? What's it like to be you, all these startups? And he reflected. This was just an off-the-beaten-path interview. It wasn't a big press conference. And he just kind of paused for a minute, and he said, I think my friend said it best. He said, it's like eating glass and staring into the abyss. Is that what you want? Is that really what you want? Just put, put a little glass in your mouth this afternoon and start chewing. That's what it's like to be him. Dream of having your own empire? Jot this down. Power beyond belief. Power beyond belief. Command, control, lead. Uh, no. I want to be able to tell people what to do and not be told what to do for once. Someone's like, yeah, that's not going to work for long. There was a commercial for National, right? The company National Rentals. And uh, the guy came out there and, you know, he was talking about, I think, getting a muscle car or whatever. And so he joked. He's like, some people call me a control freak. I prefer to call myself a control enthusiast. Maybe that's you. If only I could just tell people what to do. Power beyond belief. No one else commanding me. Jot this down. Popularity beyond measure. No limit to the number of people this young king was commanding. They loved him. Then guess what? Another star rises. Popularity is so temporary. The crowd is so fickle. And then if you get it all and you don't have the main thing, you're the biggest fool. It says in Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Is that what you want? Is that what you really want? Jot this down. Or you can age with wisdom and humility. That's the better way. Solomon is challenging us to age with wisdom and humility. Many people, scholars, feel like Ecclesiastes is Solomon's book of repentance. I did it wrong. Kind of his book later in life, how not to do it. And he's repenting and he's coming back to godliness and he's coming back as far as he can, right? God rejected him later in life. Maybe he knew it. Maybe he wrote this because he felt broken. There's a valley of vision prayer as I close here. I want to turn our attention away from the world and onto Christ. A valley of vision uh, reflection says this, most men seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for thy glory or for the good of others. They earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches, honors, pleasures of this life as if they suppose that wealth, greatness, merriment could make their immortal souls happy. But alas, what false delusive dreams are these and how miserable before long will those be that sleep in them. For all our happiness consists in loving Christ and being holy as thou art holy. Hey, do you want to find the path? You'll be unsatisfied if you envy, if you give up and slack, if you go it alone, if you dream of having your own empire. There's a better way. There's a better way. You can be content and joyful. You can work hard and rest. You can prioritize family and friends. You can age with wisdom and humility. But listen, you can't do it without Christ. And that's what I want you to take away from this. It says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Christ is your life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You, this isn't a try harder sermon. This isn't a do your best sermon. This is a, you can't do it without Christ. You follow him and you will find life. You walk away from him, dead end, dead end, unsatisfaction guaranteed. Hey, let's pray and commit our lives and consecrate our souls to Christ once again. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray to you because you are the life. 
And we know what your word says in Matthew 6. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We know what your word says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Do everything to the glory of God. Oh Lord, we consecrate ourselves to you once again. We pray, Jesus, that you would be the best part of our lives. You would be all there is, all we need. Your love is better than life. Turn us away from these dead ends. Help us not to envy people around us. Help us not to drop out and stop caring. Jesus, help us. Help us to follow you faithfully. Help us not to go it alone and to consume ourselves with work or to dream of being in charge and on top. What fools we are. Jesus, help us to simply humbly serve you, follow you, invite you to save us, prepare a place for us in paradise. And then, Lord, wherever we go, we can have all of the joy and glory of heaven emanating from us. Give us this as our true life and help us to settle for nothing less. And I pray this in Jesus' name.